This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything on your heart. I'll do the best that I can. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send your questions that way. If you are driving in your car, it is always safer to use the free KSLR mobile mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, before we get into the study um, or into the program, I want to remind you that tonight here at Calvary Chapel, we will be online at calvarysa.com. We're in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 tonight. We're going to be talking about the flood of Noah. We got another chapter, verse 8, about the flood as well. Um, but uh, tonight it's the flood. Imagine the first time they ever saw rain. Uh, imagine a whole world being wiped out in judgment. I ask you to imagine it because that's also what's going to happen. A whole unbelieving world is going to be wiped out in judgment when Jesus returns the second time to establish his kingdom. Well, this is a great Bible study uh, in preparation for the very days, the hours, the last days that we are living in. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. This will, I hope, be our last uh, live stream only service for a long time. We're going to start meeting again in person on Friday night. Uh, I'll be in 1 Peter chapter uh, 1. This is one of the great Bible studies ever. Just three verses, 5, 6, and 7 in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1. We're in Second Peter chapter one, not First Peter, and um, um, on Sunday, of course, we're going to be back uh, live in person. It's Communion Sunday. We're trying to still figure out how we're going to do it. So, please keep us in your prayers. One other reminder: Paula will be live in the studio with me tomorrow on the date day edition of the show uh, here on AM six thirty. The Word. Okay, while we wait for your phone calls, let me get to a couple of questions. I got a couple that were sent in by Debbie. Um, The first one, she said, in James 2.17, he gives us a list of what wisdom from heaven is. Is this a list of what we should look for when we ask God for guidance in our life? For instance, if we should make a purchase uh, for something to work with, such as a computer, because lots of companies are asking for people to work at home. And then she says, thank you, my precious brother in Jesus. Uh, Debbie, your first question is, is always a, a great list of what wisdom from heaven is in, uh, in our scriptures. I'm going to take a minute to get this verse up. So I can read it. Hold on a minute. I'm messing up. It's hard not to be able to see. Let me see. James chapter 2, I think is what Debbie said. 2.17. And it says this. 
In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. This is verse 18. Show me your faith without deeds, but I will show you what my faith by what I do. Let me see if Debbie meant to seven. Let me get up there. Um, no, Debbie, I don't really understand this particular reference. I think I know what you're talking about, and this isn't a list in James chapter 2 verse 17, but you're always going to find the wisdom. In, in in James, he says, ask God for wisdom, and he gives it generously. And so as you're reading through the scriptures, you can always um, um, find a list of stuff to pray for or how to pray. Um, again, I don't think you mean verse 17, so I'm not sure which verse you're specifically speaking about, but I can say this. If, in fact, uh, Debbie, you are looking for direction about what to do um, in a particular situation. In your case, you mentioned buy a computer. Um, you know, certainly if you need one to earn a living, uh, that's not something that's going to require a lot of prayer. Um, but there are times possibly when the Lord will put a check in your spirit about buying something. And I'm one of those guys who's silly enough to believe what the Bible tells us. And I think we ought to ask God for, for everything. Um, I want to walk with Jesus all day. I want, if I'm going to be making a purchase, I want to be sure that it's okay with him. If I need wisdom, I I certainly want to run to the fount of wisdom. And, And of course, that's Jesus himself. And because he's real, because he's alive, and because he lives in us, He'll give us direction in those things. I think uh, too many times, Debbie, Christians often will do what seems right to them and they'll do something, even something as insignificant as making a purchase, without asking the Lord if that's what he wants to do. And I think as a Christian, we're going to always be on solid ground if we just bring everything to the Lord in prayer. Uh, I, I, you know, obviously I don't think about every little thing that I do, but in the morning when I get up, Jesus, I want to walk with you today. I want you to keep me in that place where I'm going to be safe. So, Debbie, I, I'm guessing what you mean by the list. That didn't seem to be it for me, uh, but uh, I hope that answers your question. Here is her next question. Um, she says in James 2.17, oh, no, that's the same one. Here's the other question. I'm sorry. I'm having a hard time with my eyes today. She says, this might be a stupid question. I'm sure you've answered it a thousand times. But can you explain one more time, please? Paul quotes David in Psalms. Why is Paul Paul's quote different from David's psalm? Is it because Paul wasn't there when David wrote the psalm? Um, Debbie, it's not just the psalms and it's not just David. Uh, when you see the Old Testament quoted in by New Testament writers, it's often a quotation that comes from the Septuagint. Now, the Greek Septuagint is... It is one of the most reliable translations of our Old Testament, uh, was the preferred Old Testament scriptures um, during the, the time that, that uh, the apostles lived. So, um, you know, we pick up our Bibles in the morning. Some of us will pick up a King James. Others will pick up a, an NIV or, a, or a, a New Living Translation or a New King James. Um, well, well their Hebrew Bible would have been the Greek Septuagint from about 189 B.C., and it is one of the better Old Testament uh, translations, relies on great manuscripts, but the language is slightly different because it's Hebrew translated into Greek. Uh, Greek was the common language of the world at the time, and even those in Jerusalem, like Paul or Peter, would have, uh, would have, have um, been fluent in Greek, and that's what they were doing. So it's not a, a different translation. And by the way, Debbie, there's no stupid questions. The only stupid question is an unasked question. So I hope that uh, makes sense. Um, Let me go to our next question. This one is from Adam. Pastor Ron, in Genesis 6, who are the sons of God who went into the daughters of men? Now, Adam, I'm going to give you a short answer here. I've had that question a couple times in the last two weeks. Uh, Last Wednesday night, uh, I just did an exhaustive study of Genesis chapter 6, the first 10 verses. So um, uh, you go to calvarysa.com and you can listen to it. 
Uh, I think it is an important study. I think when we're reading things in context, we have to look at the passage that it's in. And and, and in Genesis chapter 6, we've got to reconcile God's anger and his judgment. would seem very harsh uh, if the sons of God were not demonic beings. So uh, here's uh, the short answer to your question. The sons of God, it's a term um, um, that's used only to describe angels. So these are going to be fallen angels. The distinction between the sons of God or the angels and the daughters of men is also intentional because it identifies the daughters of men who who were beautiful. It identifies them as humans. So what we've got here is sort of a, a, a crossbreeding of, of angels who could appear to be human. And women and they produce these men of renown, these Nephilim, these giants uh, who were um, so bad, they, 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 they just couldn't be controlled. And, and I believe, Adam, that this was uh, the devil's attempt to so pollute the human line that Jesus the Messiah could never have come. Remember, Genesis chapter 3. We've got the prophecy of the seed of woman crushing the head of the serpent, Satan. And I think this is Satan's attempt to destroy the human line, to to so pollute the human line that the Messiah could never come. And he did a pretty good job because God um, um, got angry. He he pronounced judgment 120 years till the flood comes and and the world will be wiped out. We're going to be studying the flood Tonight. Now, here's the problem with that interpretation. Um, there are some who just, well, no, angels and humans couldn't procreate. Evidently, there are some angels who are bound uh, in the abyss, even now, waiting for the day during the Great Tribulation when they'll be let loose. But they're so unmanageable that God has to bind them. He has to put them in a dungeon. They're getting angrier by the moment. And... Um, um, if God's response to this mixing of sons of God and the daughters of men was such that it had to be something really horrible. Now, there are some who will say that the sons of God are those who are from the godly line of Seth. And there's only two choices. Either they are the, the sons of Seth, in fact, descendants of Seth, who was a godly man, or they're fallen angels And if they are the sons of Seth, human men, going into the daughters of of men um, who were evil, it seems as though the flood is a harsh, horrible overreaction by God to to the behavior that was going on. When you multiply that with the context of the flood, when you multiply that with the fact that that uh, the term sons of God is only used to describe angels. It's it's given to us four times in Scripture. Um, It seems clear to me that the sons of God are fallen angels who are part of Satan's plan to pollute the, the, the lineage of men to the degree that Jesus could never have come. Hope that helps, Adam. Again, a much better explanation and a a more thorough explanation. Go to calvaryessay.com and listen to last Wednesday's Bible study. Um, Tiffany says, are all Christians young earth proponents? Uh, Timothy, no, not all Christians are. Now, I think all Christians should be, but um, no, this is not an essential of the historic Christian faith. I think if you are a Christian who... Uh, wants to explain away the science of the day, the earth, the universe being millions or billions of years old. Um, uh, if you want to explain away the carbon dating process, things like that, I think, well, yeah, you know, maybe the, the earth is way older and, 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 and humans didn't enter until the, the, a later time. Um, but but remember what I've said on this program many times, Tiffany, that if you don't take literally the first 11 chapters of Genesis, then all of our Christian doctrines, those that we hold on to so dearly, are, are they're all shattered. Uh, I am a young earth Christian. 
Uh, I believe the earth is between seven and 10,000 years old. And people look at me and they say, well, wait a minute. We've got science. Don't you believe science? Let me tell you, science believes a whole lot of things that are wrong. And they keep changing what they believe, something they're so sure about in one generation they're not sure about at all in the subsequent generation. So do I believe in science? Let me ask you a question. How old was Adam and Eve when he was created? Now, when I say how old, we know that when he was created, he was one day old. That was his first day. But how old did he look? I'm sure he wasn't a baby. I mean, God didn't create Adam as a baby and then all of a sudden took out of his side a woman. He was a, whatever the perfect age is, that's what Adam was. He was an adult, capable of procreating, be fruitful and multiply, get married, work the land. If God could make Adam look older than one day, don't you think he could make the earth look older than it really is? These are things that we've really got to understand. And if you're not a young earther, Tiffany, then you've got all kinds of problems to explain. You know, one of the things, and this is what what an old earth usually leads to, and this is, I think, Tiffany, the biggest danger. If you are an old earth proponent, yeah, the, the earth is millions of years old or hundreds of millions of years old, whatever. Um, usually the people that fall in that trap end up disbelieving that Adam and Eve were the very first two people on earth. They also buy the so-called science, and by the way, this is simply science fiction, but they buy the so-called science that that uh, man cre- evolved from a lower life form. And we've got Peking Man and Meltdown Man and we've got Lucy and we've got all of these other um, Neanderthals who started out, you know, on all fours and virtually worked their way up over over long periods of time. And, Tiffany, one of the things I'm going to say, and there's going to be people that really don't like this, but uh, I do not believe that you can be a truly born-again Christian without believing that Adam and Eve were the first two people and they were created by the hand of God himself. I don't think you can believe other than that and claim to be a Christian. Why do I say that? Because Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. It wasn't a story. It wasn't an allegory. Jesus taught about Adam and Eve. In the beginning, God brought man and woman together. And by the way, there's several teachings in our New Testament. Marriage, relationships, they go all the way back to Adam and Eve. So if you've got any kind of a, uh, a position that, that Adam and Eve weren't real, that they weren't the first two humans on this earth, especially when Adam appears in Jesus' genealogy. We got all kinds of other problems. So, Tiffany, I hope that answers your question. The earth is not millions or billions of years old. 340-9585. We'd love your live calls and questions. Lee says, does Hebrews 12.2 teach irresistible grace? Uh, Lee, before I read it, let me say that I know it doesn't teach irresistible grace because irresistible grace is a fallacious concept. It's a fallacious doctrine altogether. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, Lee, I'm assuming that what you're talking about is this, this part of the sentence that says, the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith. In other words, God is going to irresistibly draw us to the place where we finish. That's not at all what Hebrews 12, 2 teaches. And there is no teaching in our scriptures that teaches irresistible grace. Paul says, do not quench the Spirit of God. If God's grace was irresistible, how could we quench Him? It's God's will that everyone be saved, that no one perish. Well, if people are perishing, that is resisting God's will, is it not? There are times every day where we believers resist and rebel against the will of God. That's not irresistible grace by definition. 
So it's true that those of us who really belong to Jesus, he is the author, the, the, the originator of our faith. But he's also the one who, as we walk with him, will take us to ensure that we get to the end. But, but that doesn't mean that, that his grace is irresistible. This is a really, really unhealthy doctrine. This is, as you know, Lee, I'm sure, a Calvinist uh, distinctive. Uh, the I in tulip stands for irresistible grace. Um, however, you can look at the Bible, you can look at experience and say that we resist God's grace all the time. The idea that, well, if God chose me, he's going to make me come is antithetical to what the Bible teaches about the character and nature of God. We all have a choice, and we have to make that choice. And in eternity, God will honor the choice that we made forever and ever. If we choose to live independent of God on this earth, we will be independent of God for eternity. If we choose to give our hearts to Jesus in this life, then we will spend eternity with Jesus. But there is no reasonable doctrine of irresistible grace, Lee. So uh, not only does Hebrews not teach it, but nothing else does. We've got five minutes left in this half of the program. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor On, is it okay to use birth control within marriage? Uh, of course it is. Of course it is. Now, uh, here's another one of those times when I'm going to say predictably that, that when it comes to having children, husbands and wives ought to ask God what his will is. God, what do you want? And God will let you know. God's not going to keep secrets from you. Um, but if you are not ready for children, and you believe that God has told you that's fine for you, again, I want to beg you to seek the Lord's will. Children are a gift from God, a blessing from God. Uh, but, but there are people that aren't going to have children, people that don't want children. And, of course, it's okay to use birth control within a marriage. Um, you're going to find out that as long as your relationship sexually is holy, God really doesn't concern himself much with what you do in your bedrooms. And if you are delaying having children or don't want children at all, then... Um, Using birth control, Romans 14.23 says anything not of faith is sin. If you can do that in good conscience, don't let anybody else uh, make you feel guilty or bad. Um, you just, it, it's between you and God. It's not anybody else's business. Got time, I think, for one more before the break. Patricia says, does God hate sinners? Patricia, by definition, God is love. So, of course, God does not hate sinners. God hates sin, but he doesn't hate sinners. And by the way, it's not a really productive thing to look at somebody who's living a lifestyle rebellion against God and say, God loves you, but he hates your sin. Uh, especially if somebody is uh, homosexual, um, they don't make that distinction. They, they, their sexuality defines them. And uh, for them, that's just, well, God hates me. I can't accept that God hates me. Um, but remember, God doesn't hate anybody. God is love. So when we are sinning, God hates that our fellowship with him is broken. But his heart is broken because he loves you. When in Romans it says, God hated Esau, but he loved Jacob. That's a Hebrewism that says, relatively speaking, God wanted to love Esau the way he loved Jacob. But Jacob would respond, Esau would not let God love him in the same way. So I can say, yes, God is going to judge every sinner who doesn't receive Jesus Christ, but it has nothing to do with hating them or not choosing them. It has everything to do, Patricia, with the fact that they didn't choose God. So the distinction in-house, we can say God hates sin, and the reason he hates sin is because he so loves the sinner. It's one of the reasons why sharing our faith, offering people the forgiveness of sins, is so important because we have the only answer to the condition that's separating them from God. 
New Testament says that God lives in unapproachable light. A sinner can approach God who lives in unapproachable light. Only when the righteousness of Christ is given to us freely, only then can we approach God. And everybody that will make a choice to approach Jesus by faith, because of grace, every single one will find out just how much God loves them. You know, Patricia, before I got saved, I thought God hated me because my life was falling apart. And I kept thinking, I'm getting bad breaks. But when I got desperate enough to turn to Jesus, I was overwhelmed by the height and width and depth and breadth of His love. Good question, Patricia. Hey, phones have been quiet. We've got 30 minutes left, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show. Hey, quick reminder, uh, tonight I'm going to be teaching on the flood, Genesis 6 and 7, starting in verse 9 of Genesis 6. I'm going to try to get all the way through chapter 7. Um... I wouldn't hold my breath, but I'm going to do my best to try. Uh, I think Noah's story is absolutely fascinating, so that's what we're going to be teaching tonight as we study week by week through the book of Genesis. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Dennis. It says, First Corinthians um, says the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. How is that done? Well, Dennis, the the word sanctified means set apart. Uh, By the way, that's what holiness means. It's the same word in Greek. It just means set apart. So it doesn't mean that the unbelieving spouse is saved by the prayers or the faithfulness of the believing spouse, but set apart. And the only way that's done is through prayer. You know, when we live with somebody or when we're married to somebody who isn't a born-again believer, uh, obviously there's just immense pain in that relationship. Just immense pain. And and in and, and I'll be personal with this one. You know, Paula prayed for me for 13 years before I got saved. And believe me, not only did Paula set me apart, she put a bullseye on my back. She never stopped praying. She was constant in bringing me. Now, her, her motive wasn't always right, but she was always bringing me forth the throne of God. It was setting me apart for the Holy Spirit to come and grab me. And that's how that sanctification, that's being set apart, occurs by praying. By praying. Again, there's no promise there that your unbelieving spouse is going to get saved. But it happens a lot. Uh, a lot of times God has to bring somebody to the very end of their life in order to get them, but because they've been set apart, because they've been prayed for so much, like the persistent widow, I'm just going to keep knocking on the door, I'm just going to keep banging until my prayer is heard. God wants to save the unbelieving spouse. It's what he wants to do, it's what you want him to do. And so you can be relentless in your prayers for him or for her. So, Dennis, that's what's meant there. Again, there's no uh, implied promise that every unbelieving spouse is going to get saved. It just says that God's going to put a mark on them and he's going to chase them, and it's going to be really difficult for those people to die apart from Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of them are hard heads, and and we, we, we have to be have to be, go through really difficult things. But um, believe me, when you pray for your unbelieving spouse, I would add the same thing as for your unbelieving children. When you pray for them, God's going to work hard to get him. He'll do everything 
short of forcing them to come. And of course, we know God can't do that. I like that question, Dennis. Thank you. Jennifer wants to know, is there a biblical argument for being a vegan? The answer, Jennifer, is no, no, a thousand times no. You know, uh, vegetarians and vegans often um, get really self-righteous. If Jesus was alive, he'd be a vegan. No, he wouldn't. Jesus, uh, Jesus' diet, of course, was kosher. But when Jesus left his disciples, who were very, very Jewish here, as apostles, he told them, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. And by that he meant the food. Peter received that revelation just before going or being sent by God to the household of Cornelius, the first notice of Gentile inclusion in the church. So no biblical argument for being a vegan. Now, Jennifer, I don't know if you're a vegan or if somebody's trying to persuade persuade you to be, but whatever the case is, you eat what you want to eat, you do it with thanksgiving to the Lord, and don't worry about what anybody else in this world eats. So no biblical argument at all for being a vegan. Here is a question from Ben. He says, I need to know if we'll recognize people that we know now when we get to heaven. Ben, of course we will. You know, 1 Corinthians says, now we know in part, then we will know fully as we are known by God. In other words, we're going to know what we need to know. We're not going to be dumber in heaven than we are here. Of course we're going to recognize people. You know, it's a fascinating um, um, uh, example that, that we're given on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, who'd never seen uh, Moses or Elijah. Um, he knew who they were. James and John knew who they were. Now, how did they know him? Jesus didn't say, excuse me, guys, excuse me, I want to introduce you to two old friends of mine. He didn't do that. They recognized them. And that whole mountain was transported into the glorious future. And they knew. Having never seen them before, having never talked to them, they knew. Peter said, it's good that we're here, Lord. And for John and Peter, we know through their epistles that that mountaintop experience um, was sort of the, the key element that would never leave them for the rest of their lives. And they recognized them. So yes, Ben, we're going to know and recognize people. I had the question, I think it was last week, about um, uh, aborted babies. And when when moms and dads of those aborted babies get to heaven, are they going to be able to recognize their, their babies? Of course. Of course. And it will be a glorious reunion. Don't worry about, oh, they're going to hate me because of what I did. No, in heaven it will be wonderful. I don't know how many of you remember the, the movie, uh, the Apostle Paul movie, um, uh, last year sometime. Um, the best thing they did in that movie, and it was a pretty good movie, but the best thing they did, the most realistic, was throughout the movie they would have uh, Paul having nightmares of these people that he was guilty of their murder, including a child. There was one female child um, who, who was always in his nightmares, and and, and he'd wake up shaking. Um, but at the end, when Paul was ready to go, that same child opened her arms and he just knew that everything was going to be okay. So, Ben, we're going to recognize people that we know now. I think we're going to recognize people that we don't know now when we get to heaven. And I can't wait, frankly. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Daryl. Um, what is the connection between faith and obedience? Um, Daryl, the connection is two things, really. One, we cannot be obedient without faith. Not in a long-term basis. Um, when we're going to be obedient, we take steps of obedience. And um, we do that because we believe. I mean, think about it. One of the things I'm going to say tonight in the Bible study and in uh, Genesis chapter 6, is Noah's going to be told that in seven days, God's going to say, go into the ark, in seven days, the flood of judgment's going to come. What would you do if you had 
seven days. You, if, if Jesus visited you in your dreams tonight and said, you need to get ready because the rapture is going to happen in seven days, what would you do? We'd be obedient, wouldn't we? I don't think we'd keep struggling with sins. I don't think we'd, we'd, we'd look at pornography. I don't think that we would lose our temper being angry. Why? Because we know that that judgment is coming. We know we're going to see the Lord. So we would be obedient. So I think faith demands obedience. The second connection, Daryl, is that faith empowers obedience. You know, we take a step of faith, and it's like a tidal wave of the Holy Spirit comes behind us and fills us, propels us, with the ability to be obedient to God. And when we're obedient, Acts 5.32 says, God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. So when we take that little step of faith to obedience, then the power of God takes over. And obedience is a labor of love rather than just hard work. You know, I'm going to try to be, be good. So that's the connection between faith and obedience, those two things, Daryl. But uh, you cannot be obedient apart from faith. You can purpose in your heart to do better. You can try to turn over a new leaf. You can make all the New Year's resolutions that you want. But you cannot successfully be obedient apart from believing in the crucified and resurrected Christ. You know, Daryl, the, the, the idea of faith and obedience matters a great deal as we work out our salvation, according to Paul, with fear and trembling. You know, God asks us to do really hard things. He asks us to do things that don't make sense to us. And if we don't have uh, obedience, or if we don't have faith, rather, then we're not going to take that step of faith. Let me also say this relative to this pandemic that's going on in our world right now. There's a whole bunch of people whose faith is failing them now because of fear. And all you have to do, if you're one of those people that are overwhelmed by fear, if you're overwhelmed by worry, be obedient. Get in the Word. Ask Jesus to come alongside of you and hold you in His arms. He'll do that very thing. And He will lead you into opportunities to be obedient. You know, as I think a lot of you know, we do a lot of crazy free stuff here at Calvary Chapel. And we've never had any money. But when we take steps of obedience, God always meets us. It's always exciting. It's not always easy, certainly, but it's always exciting. And we get to see the hand of God move. And that means we can't wait for the next opportunity. He gives us to be obedient to something else. And so those two, faith and obedience, are forever linked, Daryl. Forever linked. Good question. Let's go to our first phone call of the day. We got Ray calling on line one from San Antonio. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, hello, Pastor Ron. Greetings and salutations. And I just made it in before the close of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ray. Um, going back to the previous uh that up of uh, recognizing people in, uh, you know, our friends in heaven or maybe not even friends going, what? You got here? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, how, how, I, I am not completely sure, and I'm sure you have thought much on this and have an opinion of how will our communication be, and, and while I'm thinking of it, I was thinking of you and your resurrected perfect body and you were thinking well you have a big booming voice and uh, <laughs> other things you know tall and you know uh, how would I recognize you then you know <laughs> that that's beside the point but uh, <laughs> what, what would our communication be I mean is it going to be just oh we're there and we're you know all knowing everything all the time uh, you know, I'm just curious as to what your your point on that is, and I'm going to hang up and listen. Thank you, Ray. You know, those are questions that we don't have answers to. I I think, Ray, um, that what we're going to be able to do is communicate with, with the Lord. We're going to be able to communicate with one another the way Jesus and his Father communicated. 
um, when he was here. Uh, he said, I only do what my father tells me to do. He, he, he only said what he hears his father say. So I don't know if it's going to be unspoken communication or spoken communication. Uh, I don't know whether we're going to be back at the Tower of Babel when everybody spoke the same language. Uh, I doubt that it will be an earthly language at all. Um, but what I am really, really sure of is that it won't be by texting. It won't be on social media. There won't be any abbreviations. I just think that we're going to really understand one another from the heart. And we're going to know, as I said earlier, as we are known by God. And Ray, when that happens, um, we can't even envision now what that kind of communication is going to be like. That's the best I can do with that question, Ray. Thank you. Let's go to line two. We got an anonymous call on line two. You are on the air. Hi, you're on the air. All right. I'm supposed to be on anonymously. You are. Oh, okay, good. I'm not on the radio then? Oh, you're on the radio, but nobody knows who you are. Okay, well, yeah, they'll recognize my voice. Question later. Are you famous? Yeah, well, yeah, I look like it. <laughs> What's up? Yeah. Well, I wanted uh, earlier mentioned the lady about is there any uh, something on being a vegetarian? Mm -hmm. uh, what was the uh, thing on Daniel that he proved they went on a diet and they were stronger than the other guys that had their what they were eating? Was that just an assumption on on our part that it was veggies? Yes. Yeah, you know, what, what that would be, uh, thank you, Anonymous, what that would be is, um, um, you know, they had never eaten anything that wasn't kosher. Uh, they ate with Jewish dietary laws. Jews ate meat. They didn't eat pork, of course, and there, was, there were things that, that they couldn't eat. But as long as, as meat was prepared kosher, they would eat it. And what, what the, the whole thing in Babylon, when, when Nebuchadnezzar took the best and the brightest, and, and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and some others, they went in the first exile because they were the best Israel had to offer. The smartest, the best looking. They were, they, were, they were young men without flaw. When I say young men, they were probably 12, 13, 14 years of age. And um, what, what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do by forcing them into breaking their dietary uh, restrictions was, was, and I, I always make this word up so it doesn't make a lot of sense, but he was trying to Babylonianize them. He was trying to strip them from their Jewish identity. And what uh, Daniel and the others were saying is, look, we're not going to eat. Uh, you kill us, you kill us, but we're not going to eat. And Daniel, of course, went to the steward and, and made a deal, and God showed off for them. They were healthier than all of the others after the trial period, and they were able to do it. So, But it was not a vegan or a vegetarian diet. He's talking about kosher versus unkosher, clean versus unclean. And, of course, the Babylonians, uh, Anonymous, they ate like we do. They ate anything and, and didn't worry about clean or unclean. All of that for the Jews, was reversed. Uh, read about in Acts chapter 10, when Peter's on the, the roof of Simon the, the Tanner, and God appears to him in a vision with a sheet, with all kinds of unclean food being lowered, and tells Peter, rise, kill, and eat. So everything uh, was then available for food, and there was no right or wrong um, in the book of Acts. That's one of the things, the outpouring uh, of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, changed once and forever. Good question. Now, you know, there are a lot of churches, Anonymous, and you may be thinking about this, who have the Daniel diet, you know, and, and uh, you know, we Christians are pretty gullible. We'll fall for anything. But that is to misunderstand completely um, what, uh, what the point of uh, Daniel and the others was all about. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. Um, let's go to, uh, this is a question from a worship leader. Um, pastor, and how does a pastor create an atmosphere of worship? And then as a worship leader, what's my role? I really love this question, uh, worship leader. Um, you know, I am, I, I'm the least musical person that, you know, I can't sing. I can't play anything. I can bang on some drums. I was a, a, a drummer for a surf band back uh, when I was growing up, which was like 2000 years ago. 
Um, so so what I do to create an atmosphere of worship is teach people how to worship. That's what I do every week when we open the Bible and teach them. So that's really important. Uh, my job is to teach people what worship is so that they can step into worship um, completely. Now, your role is very important. Um, your role is to lead people like me who have no skill into the throne room of God. Now, I'm not talking about getting goosebumps. I'm not talking about um, uh, you looking out and seeing everybody with tears streaming down their face and their arms raised. Um, Your job is to worship God with a pure and holy heart. Your job is to sing with joy and, and thanksgiving. And then when people watch you and your worship team, then they'll catch what you have. And let me be more specific about your role because I think these things are really important and I am a man who has been blessed by the best worship pastor in the whole world. Uh, he's been with me now for 13 years, I think, and and um, um, I, I just have never had a moment's problem. And I don't interfere with what he does. I, I don't have to. But one of the things I told him at the very beginning was uh, your job as a worship leader is to lead worship, not to talk. So, no preaching, no trying to manipulate people into an atmosphere of worship. Um, Just sing. Just sing. You and your team sing. Um, My worship pastor uh, only says, Good morning, Calvary Chapel. And then opens with a word of prayer, closes with a word of prayer, but but all of it in between is worship. You know, it is so frustrating for me when worship leaders want to talk, and it's not that they can't talk, it's just that, that they don't need to. You know, you'll see them all the time, they'll be lingering on notes or lingering on refrains in the song, and they'll say, come on, let's worship the Lord together. And, and I always thought, well, that's what I'm doing. You know, why are you interrupting? Um, so just worship. Make sure that your life is right with God. Make sure that your relationship with Jesus matters more to you than the quality of your music. Now, the quality of the music needs to be good. But if it's about music, you're missing the point. This is about your personal relationship with the Lord. And remember, as a worship leader, you have a, a, a small pastoral ministry uh, with... Uh, the, the the team uh, that you lead. And so you want to encourage them to walk with Jesus. You want them to be concerned about holiness. You've got to guard against performing and instead um, just make sure that the focus is on your heart, their hearts, with God. you got to love the people that you're leading into worship. Never speak ill of them. I've had worship leaders in the past say things like, you know, the people just won't worship. They just don't get it. Well, you know, that's probably a leadership problem. And our job isn't to make sure anybody else worships. Our job, your job, worship leader, is to make sure that you're worshiping and then you spill onto the people that you're leading in worship. Don't draw attention to yourself. Make sure it's all and only about Jesus. Make sure that your walk is not only holy, but healthy. You need to be a man of the word or a woman of the word. There's women worship leaders. Um, And you're going to find that you have a church that really knows how to worship. And when you get to heaven, God will say, thank you, you taught them that. You've got to check your ego in completely. Remember that you are a man under authority. My worship pastor knows that I am the worship pastor in the church. He is the tool that God has given me, and he's been such an effective tool that I don't really have to worry about him at all. So that's what you do. So that's the best thing. Don't worry about emotions or feelings or light shows or smoke coming from the stage. Just make sure that the quality of your worship is as good as you can make it. Do all things as unto the Lord. But make sure 
that it's coming from your heart. I'm less than two minutes, so I'm going to finish with this question. This is a an area that I'm passionate about. Um, don't do anything to manipulate the worship. We don't need lowered lights. We don't need effects. All we need is men and women whose heart is right with God, whose heart is to serve the Lord. And He will bless you and the worship in your church abundantly so. Again, I'm coming from a perspective of, of, I've only had two worship leaders in 25 years. And those two worship leaders, one was with me for 10 years. We sent him out. He was actually called eventually to be a pastor, and he's planted a church. He actually appears on this radio station. His radio show does. Pastor Troy Neely from uh, Calvary Chapel Solid Rock in North Central San Antonio. Uh, and then Pastor Elaine, uh, who uh, I'm never letting him go anywhere. <laughs> he's, he's just been the absolute best. And I've never had to spend a minute worrying about or wondering about how effective our worship is. It's just singing with a joyful heart, singing with with gratitude to the Lord, and making sure that you're rightly representing Him. Great question. Well, the phones were quiet today, but thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, I want a special message to my friend and my brother-in-law, Ernie. Happy birthday. God bless you. Uh, Tonight at 7 o'clock, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, the flood. Uh, AM 630, the word tomorrow at 4 o'clock with Paula. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.